Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study Class. My name is Lori Atkins, stepping in for Dr. Tim Jennings, who is in the central part of the country today. He's at in the Arlington, Dallas, Texas area. He's speaking at the University of Texas, Arlington this morning, maybe now. He's giving a an aging brain seminar today. He also spoke uh, last evening. He gave a talk on the atonement models. Um, I just checked with Dean. We're not sure if the Arlington SDA Church who sponsored the visit, uh, we don't know if they're recording it or live streaming it. Um, we know that we are not. The ministry is not. So if you want to check the website for the Arlington SDA Church, if they're recording it or streaming it, we think the links or the, the info would be there. Um, also, I wanted to give a reminder that our final Mental Health Matters presentation can't hear me? Oh, well, I'm just going to need to yell. Um, <laughs> Mental Health Matters is a monthly talk that Dr. Jennings has been giving at the Hickson United Methodist Church here in the local Chattanooga area. Uh, we've been doing it once a month for at least 10, maybe 11 months, and the final one is coming up on December 13th, which is not this coming Thursday, but a week from Thursday. And that topic is going to be on the God-shaped brain, the same presentation that he's doing today out in Texas. So it's a super opportunity for the people here that are local to hear uh, renowned global speaker Tim Jennings give a talk. And uh, if you don't know the history of that, Hickson United Methodist Church had several things happen in the course of its church life that made mental health a real focus, and they're also very involved in the community, have a lot of community activities where they bring people in, whether they're members of the church or not, and this is one of those initiatives that we've been we've been doing, and we usually have books there and DVDs, and we have punch cards for the folks that come every week so that they can earn free books, and, and the turnout has been very good. So the final uh, topic, God-shaped brain, is going to be this next Thursday, December the 13th. Okay, let's, let's have a word of prayer and we'll start class. Father, we are so thankful for a place, a dry, warm place today um, to come together to learn about you, to worship you, and to learn about worshiping you. Um, we know you've promised to be here with us where we're gathered and we're honored that you're here. Um, we ask for your Holy Spirit to really uh, open our hearts, open our minds, enlighten us to the truth about your character. Um, and let us be accurate representatives, representatives and ambassadors of yours so that we can, we can reflect your character accurately and can hasten your coming is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are studying today, we're studying Lesson 11 in our quarterly called Oneness in Christ. And this week's lesson is titled Unity in Worship. So when we talk about this idea of worship, what comes to mind? What do you think about? Are we talking about the devotional practices in our homes? We used to call that family worship. Anybody else have family worship? Are we talking about the, the tenor and the flow of the church service? And whether we sing hymns or praise music... Whether we play the pipe organ, or a guitar, or heaven forbid, gasp, drums, is there a smoke machine, 
Is that what we mean when we're talking about worship? Honor. Respect. You understand that what I just described has split churches before. There are people very wrapped around that axle. That that's what worship is. And what it should be. So in the commentary, the teacher's quarterly, we're asked to review Revelation 4, 8 through 11. And I'm going to read it from the remedy paraphrase. And it says, these beings could act unbelievably fast, both physically and mentally, which was symbolized by each having six wings and eyes all over, even under their wings. And they lived constantly, day and night, in a continual state of appreciation and love for God saying, God is holy, 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 Lord Almighty, who has always been, who is, and who is to come. Whenever these four living beings honor God's character of love and thank him who governs the universe from the throne, the one who is the source of life and lives forever, the 24 elders are filled with awe and humbled in hearts and demonstrate their devotion by falling down in love before him who sits on the throne. And they worship him who is the source of life and who lives forever. They cast their gold crowns before him. Listen to this. Demonstrating that their lives, their perfect characters, and their healed minds come from him. And they proclaim, you are worthy, O Lord God Almighty, to receive all honor, praise, glory, and power, because you created all things. And all things have their origin in you and are sustained by you. Is this describing worship? So the nature of worship, again, this is coming from the, the teacher's commentary in the quarterly. And it talks about some of the words that the Bible uses, both in the Old Testament Greek and the New Testament Hebrew, to describe different aspects of worship. The Hebrew words for worship emphasize honor, respect, reverence, and they focus on the actions of bowing down, prostrating, or otherwise humbling oneself before another person. But is that the extent of it? Worship in the Old Testament was not confined to bodily action. It also included the concepts of obedience and service that demonstrate the reality of our worship. Is this something that Israel struggled with? Did they get caught up in the actions and the practices and the rituals and forget what those were actually pointing to. Their hearts were not changed. They weren't even impacted to the point where God said, I hate what you're doing. New Testament Greek, there's a similar variety of words that can mean to bow down, to revere, to show honor and devotion or to serve. The most common word for worship in the New Testament is a Greek word that I can't pronounce, but it literally means to kiss toward, likely a reflection of the custom in those times of showing honor to a king or an official by bowing before them and literally kissing their, their ring or kissing their feet. This is action understood as an admission of dependence or submission to the person in authority. And using this word to describe the worship of God, we can therefore deduce that more than just the physical action of bowing down is intended. Again, this is from the quarterly. 
I think it's very well said. To worship God is to recognize the greatness and majesty of God, to understand that he is the creator and we are created. He is infinite, we are finite. To admit one's own helplessness and absolute dependence upon him. Such admission also carries with it the implication of willingness to accept God's lordship over our lives. True worship has several important features. First and foremost, it is directed at God and him alone. And we're going to talk more in just a bit about how important which God you're worshiping is. Second, worship is never forced. It is a spontaneous response to the character of God and his redemptive healing actions on our behalf. It begins from the heart and not from the expectation of others. Like maybe a compliance committee. I don't know. Third, worship is not simply a Sabbath morning activity or part of a worship service. It is a lifestyle. We are to live and breathe our responses to what God has done for us. The living creatures in the throne room, pictured in Revelation 4, worshipped continually, day and night. This imagery underscores the idea that each word and action of ours should bring honor to the name of God. And what is the name of God? I mean, the continually worshipping pray day and night is hard to imagine. And I think what it's talking about when it says each word and action of ours should bring honor to the name of God. What is his name? Love. His character. His character. If all of our words and actions actu- accurately represent his character of love, then even if the behavior may not be 100% perfect, I think about Rahab, was she accurately representing the character of love in sacrificing herself and putting herself in danger for the safety of others, I think so. Were her methods 100% the best she could do? Maybe not. But I do think that our words and actions can accurately represent the God that we worship. In fact, I think they do accurately represent the God that we worship, whether we know it or not. Um, But if we are actually representing a character of love, then you're right. His, his beauty, his holiness, we can worship by letting that flow through us and out onto other people. And I think that's how we glorify God. You know, it says bring glory to God. Yes. How do you bring glory? How do we people bring glory to God? It's by allowing him to make those directions and changes and basically in, in, in the house house hunting mm-hmm. or flipping technique would be called doing a gut job on us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, going in. We're fixer-uppers for sure. Putting in a whole new thing so that we're back to the way we should have been if we weren't born in sin. Right. Yes, Teresa. So worship is actually based on our personal relationship with Jesus. Oh, I think it has to be. That's that's the root of what worship is. Yeah. Relationship with God. It's also based on design law. Let's yeah. not forget that there is a law of worship. We're not going to forget that. <laughs> No, go ahead. Yeah, I I didn't think you would, but 20 years ago when I heard worship, I heard things like um, what kind of music's being played, what clothing are you wearing Mm -hmm. to church, what car did you, are you bringing your best, Yeah. did you pay your tithe, all this stuff that I now view as superficial. Okay, now when I hear worship, I, I hear design law. 
Because it's unavoidable. We all worship something. Because that's how we're designed. We worship. Everyone worships. Even the atheists. They worship. We have to have something to center their mind on. That's right. And, and what matters is what we worship. Well, I, he has not read my notes. I can testify to that. <laughs> but it seems like he has. There might be a connection. Maybe, I don't know. Yes, there was some strings vibrating there. Anyway, so the next thing in my notes was a little snippet from a book that I've read to you before, but it's been, I think I looked back and it's been three years, so I think it's okay to read it again. But it made such an impact on me when I first read it, which was decades ago, and this was way before I knew anything about natural laws or the law of worship. It still made an impact on it, so I think it bears repeating. And it's, the book was written by Louis Giglio. He's a noted speaker and author. If you've heard of him, he wrote a, it's a little pocket book. It's, it's tiny, and it's about this concept of everybody worship. And it call, it's called The Air I Breathe, Worship as a Way of Life. It was published in 2006. So he starts the book this way. You, my friend, are a worshiper every day. All day long, everywhere you go, you worship. It's what you do. It's who you are. I don't know whether or not you consider yourself a worshiping kind of person, but you cannot help but worship something. It's what you were made to do. Should you for some reason choose not to give God the worship he desires, you'll still worship something, exchanging the creator for something he has created. Worship is simply about value. Worship is our response to what we value most. This person, this thing, this experience, this whatever it is, it matters the most to me. It's the thing I put first in my life. And we're not just talking about religious things or the religious crowd. Churchgoers, Christians, we are talking about everybody on planet Earth, a multitude of souls Proclaiming with every breath what is worthy of their affection, their attention, and their allegiance. Proclaiming with every step what it is they worship. So how do you know where and what you worship? It's easy. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your loyalty, your wallet, At the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever or whoever is on that throne is what is of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. Sure, not too many of us walk around saying, I worship my stuff. I worship my Xbox. I worship her. I worship my job. I worship my body. I worship my children. Nice. I worship me, but the trail never lies. We may say we value this thing or that thing more than any other, but the volume of our actions speaks louder than our words. Our worship is more about what we do than about what we say. To me, taking this honest inventory of how and where I spend my time, energies, talents, resources how those are being used. It's a sobering, humbling, convicting process. 
for me, full of revelations and, I would say, opportunities for growth <laughs> and improvement. Uh, okay, Russell's lead-in, why is this idea of worship so important? Why does who and what we worship really matter so much? It's because we become like what we worship. Yes. If we worship ourselves, we become more like us. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, we don't become more like Yeah. Yeah. And so no matter what you're worshiping, should you anything, whether you know it or not, you are slowly becoming more and more like that. And our culture is really interesting in that we mm-hmm. worship busyness, we worship... Yeah. You know, achievement and who we are is so linked with what we do. We can right. Hide. I had a, a, a lovely conversation with my boss recently, who's a wonderful Christian woman, and she was like, you know, how the catchphrase "your authentic self" is, and she was struggling with what does that mean. <laughs> and I said, well, I think I can probably help you with that from my perspective. If you you are the kind of person where if you were offered a choice of things to do, you would choose. The, the thing that helped. You would choose the positive. You would choose forgiveness. You mm-hmm. would choose compassion. You would choose the good. Right. That's who you are. Totally separate from what you do, mm-hmm. how much money you have, how much you achieve. But our culture is so centered on your worth is what you produce. Right. Who you, you know, that's who you are. And I think the culture, people in the culture are getting fed up with being identified that way. Yeah. But it is hard to divorce yourself from that thinking, that way of thinking, and think of who you are as a core being. And stuff like Katrina or any more recent examples always brings out two yeah. kinds of people. The people that help, contribute, or actually go there physically, and the people who steal the people's stuff while their right. house is vacant. You know, I mean, you have, you have two kinds of people, any one of these tragedies brings out and the Bible always talks about two groups, two groups. only two groups mm-hmm. no matter who you what religion you're in no matter where you are on earth you're only part of one of two groups right even if you think you're sitting on the fence you really aren't sitting on no. the fence you're on one group or the other no decision is still a decision agreed all right so we're going to talk more about that Saturday's lesson has a statement that says, Gratitude to God, expressed in community worship, transforms people's hearts and minds into the likeness of the character of God and prepares them for service. This is absolutely true. Regardless of which God and which character of God is being worshipped. So let's look at some examples The apostles, the early church, they worshipped the God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Their hearts and minds were transformed for service. And what did they do? They lived in community. They sold their resources and pooled them. They practiced other-centered love. And they spread the gospel like crazy. What about some other examples? And they revealed the character of Jesus. Exactly. And they became like him. But they also recognized different gifts. That right. Everybody wasn't exactly a cookie cutter of someone else. Yes. And, you know, even among the apostles, 
some were more for the Gentiles, some mm -hmm. were more for the Jews, some Peter, Paul had a really difficult way of speaking or re writing that people were perplexed. Right. <laughs> he left them easy to misinterpret what he said. They had to go back and try to say, yeah. not what I said, what I meant. <laughs> but, um, you know, so different people had different gifts, I think, for different needs of exactly. the receiver. Somebody really needed to hear the Paul, the mm -hmm. Pharisee, Paul view. Yes. You know, the very, very distinct details in the law and stuff that other Pharisees would understand. And yet he was one of the ones that went to other than the Jews. Right. Mostly. And Paul equated it to the human body, which I think is a very accurate representation. Because we tend to get jealous, you know, somebody will be like, well, look at them, I can't do that. You know, they're, they're saving all these poor little kids. And exactly. And, that. and then they go into Fritz mode. Well, I can't do that, so I'm not going to do anything. anything. Yeah. Well, you know, you've got to find your own specific way of contributing. Yeah. We do. We all have our gifts, and, and he will show us those. If we ask, he'll show us, and he'll give us opportunities to use them. So, other examples. Can we think of any other examples? There were some church folks in the Dark Ages who worshipped God. Their hearts and minds were transformed for service. And what did they do? They burned people at the stake in order to save them and send their souls to heaven. Why would they do that? Because they became like the God they were worshiping. What about in 1994? There were some Christians, even some Adventists in Rwanda. They worshiped God. Their hearts and minds were transformed what did they do? Killing They actually used churches as killing fields. Pastors and priests and nuns would lead people to their churches for sanctuary and then call in the militia to kill them or trap them inside and burn them alive. That whole incident with Rwanda was what really got Tim thinking in terms of what it is that the quote-unquote community right. that people superficially recognize as a Christian community is and what a community of true character is yes. that has to do with the paradigm and the, the, uh, well, the whole thing of, of design law. Exactly. And it's agnostic. Across denominations, I know he cited a study, and I don't have a snippet of his memory, but he cited a study where they evaluated who took part in this. What was the key factor that would have turned Christians who were supposed to be like Christ into genocidal murderers and without fail, regardless of denomination or doctrine, folks who worshipped an arbitrary, exacting, dictator, imposed law type of God took part in the killings. And those who worshipped a God of love, a God of freedom, helped, didn't take part, and assisted across the board. They were unified. Don't forget our quarterly is studying unity, how we get there. Okay, 
Are we beginning to see how very important our worship is? Not just that we are worshiping God, but which God we are worshiping. Why? Because, as the quarterly rightly states, it transforms our hearts, minds, and characters. We become like that which we worship, that which we esteem, that which we admire. It's a law. And no one is exempt. This outcome is 100% predictable. Just like you can predict with 100% certainty what will happen if I drop my glasses, right? Has anybody had any doubt in their mind what will happen if I drop these? How is that possible? Are you clairvoyant? Do you have the gift of prophecy? Probably not. But you do have a firm understanding of the natural law of gravity. And I'm telling you, once you start to understand these natural laws that we discuss in this class... And the impacts of living in harmony or out of harmony with them, the whole world starts becoming a whole lot more predictable. People, their behaviors, their reactions become more predictable. Relationships become more predictable. It's almost like you have some secret insider info or a decoder ring or something. And not in a judgy, know-it-all kind of way, but in more of a uh, revelatory or diagnostic root cause analysis kind of way. So, most of you know, I know you know because you've been there, but we have a monthly get-together in this class. We have potluck at somebody's house where you can get to know each other better outside of class, and then we do a Bible study in the afternoon where we usually talk about the last couple of weeks' lessons, delve more deeply into some things. Um, and several months ago, Linda, who does an amazing job organizing those and usually leading them, but Linda had us talk about in that class First of all, we talked about our aha moments that we've experienced in this class, which was amazing. And she's done that in this class, and it was great. But she also had us go over and review some of the natural laws that we've named and defined in this class. And I thought it was such a good idea. We had folks at my house that afternoon that had never been to this class. We have folks joining us. Somebody will watch today for the first time never heard anything about this class. And those of us that teach try to be so cognizant of that, that we're not kind of speaking our own language. And if you're not in the club, you don't know what we're talking about. So um, I thought it might be okay. I'll ask you, is it okay if we review some of the natural laws that we've defined in this class? We're going to name them, maybe review for some of us, but may bring some other folks up to speed. And what do we mean when we use the term natural law or design law? What makes it, what makes it so? As God created it to be. As God created it to be. We know God runs his universe on certain principles, certain fundamental laws, certain constants that l- both life and our reality as we know it are, based, are designed to operate on. These laws are not enacted 
They are not legislated. They are not imposed. But rather, they are an inherent aspect of God's original design, and they actually emanate from the very nature and character of God Himself. These are the principles that life is designed to operate upon, and our health and happiness and continued life are dependent upon being in harmony with them. And you might know about some of them. You may recognize some of the laws of health, the laws of physics, the law of gravity we just talked about. So help me out here. Throw out some of the more specific design laws that we have defined in this class, and we'll see if I've got them on my list. Well, we were just talking about the law of worship. Law so of worship. whatever you worship will become who you are. And that's, you can't fool that. Correct. You know, I will add, too, that just as, a, as a, an idea that might enhance what we're talking about, if you have a medical problem, let's pick diabetes, for example, and your doctor says, check your blood sugars and so on and, and come back and show me what, how well you've been doing with the treatment plan. You come back, you, you check your blood sugars when you know it'll be its best. Right. You know? <laughs> and, and the, you know, there's no way of the doctor knowing when you ate or didn't yeah. eat. So you're, you know, everything they have normal. a way around it with the hemoglobin A1C. But yeah. in the back of the day, they would, you could just pick whenever you did, did it to, to look good. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you can come back to your doctor and say, oh, you know, look, I've, I've done so well. And yet, can you fool your body? No. Your body will show you the true result of what mm -hmm. you really are doing. And all the natural law is like that. All of it. You can act like this is going to be fantastic, <laughs> but in reality, you can't fool the physical uh, reactions of your body. Right. It's akin to having your medical records doctored, or even your records in heaven doctored, but not actually have any healing take place. And like Linda said, all natural laws are like this. And it's one of the main distinguishing factors between natural law and imposed law. Because none of imposed laws are like that. If I go 60 miles an hour down this street out here where the speed limit is 40, am I guaranteed to get caught or does somebody have to have a radar detector on me? If I get caught and I end up in here, am I guaranteed to pay a fine? Or oh. might I find a... <laughs> <laughs> Let's use a different city. It's completely <laughs> arbitrary. Yeah, it's completely arbitrary. And it's dependent on the mood of a judge on any given day or on so many factors. Natural laws are dependent only on whether you're in harmony with it or you're out of harmony with it. Which is really very comforting and, again, very predictable and non-prejudicial and non-biased and all of the things that make us bristle under imposed law. So, and it's not just, this is not, again, just a Christian thing or a religious thing. This is true of Everything. The psychiatric community cause, calls this modeling, behavior modeling. And it's a technique that they use. Because you literally become like what you spend time with, what you admire, what you value. And by the way, this law 
is the reason and what will allow God's church triumphant, the remnant, the priesthood of believers to be wholly united in heart, in mind, in purpose, and in character and have completely different doctrines, different beliefs, different practices, sometimes dramatically different, but still be united. Does that make sense to you? If it weren't for the law of worship, that would not be possible. Because we will all be like Christ. That's why it's important on our actions. Because if another person doesn't know Christ, and they do look at us, and they like us, and they see things in us that they would like to be like that too. They're attractive, yeah. That is just a door opener to them to find out why you're like you are. And it may be the only Jesus they see. All right, more. Any more natural design laws? Believed create fear. Yes. Belief in a lie breaks the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust causes us to be fearful and to be selfish. Because if we don't trust that whoever we mistrust is not going to take care of us or be looking out for us, that only leaves us to look out for ourselves. And this is so well plotted out in poor Adam and Eve. I mean, every single thing they did checked all the boxes. They believed a lie. They didn't trust God. Didn't trust that he had their best interests at heart, that he was holding out on them. Believed Satan's lies. Ate the fruit. Immediately ran and hid because they were afraid. Well, now they had to start looking out for themselves. They're weaving some fig leaves and covering themselves up because now they think they're naked. May I show a different example? Please. Something a little less dramatic, maybe, but still <laughs> part of our culture. Yeah. They actually did a study for students, and the, the, the teacher picked out a, an item, like people with freckles, for example, uh-huh. or people with blue eyes, or whatever, whatever they picked. And they told the students... These kids have been proven to be smarter than the average person, have been more this or whatever mm-hmm. attribute, wonderful attribute they told them. Now, all this is a lie. Right. They are lying to the children. They have not been proven. They just said, this equals that. Total lie. So what happens when that? Subsequently, the kids who are, have those attributes do better. Mm-hmm. The ones who, who are their classmates treat them that way and so on, and they believe a lie, but they are just told what to believe, Right. and they could be totally wrong. They could also mistreat kids on that reason. Yep. You know, they're, 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 they're less, less intelligent than. Mm-hmm. than the average person, people with brown eyes, or whatever they chose, whatever mm-hmm. attribute they chose that people believe, right. it would alternate, it would alter their <clears throat> entire behavior, yep. their scholastic outcome, their interactions with the classmates, it was unbelievable, all based on a total fabrication. Yeah. Of course, people object to students being lied to that way. And, you know, of course. But it really made a, uh, it made a real impact. Yeah. On, look at how many things we are told are true about us, you know, race-wise mm-hmm. or, you know, e- economy-wise or whatever. 
we're told that you're better, you're worse, yep. and yet you'll, for example, if you're rich or you're poor, and that the Bible, and I'm, I'm not going to look it up at the moment, but it'll say the, the poor people should glory in their elevated status, and the rich people should glory in their low mm -hmm. status. In God's opinion, it's all it's reversed from what we've been told. And we backwards. are fed a bundle of lies, <clears throat> and it has altered our behavior towards each other in every respect. There's no doubt. And I mean, Dr. Jennings wrote an entire book about this. The God-Shaped Brain talks about we have power over what we believe, but what we believe has power over us. And some of the examples <laughs> that he gives in that book are just... Startling, similar to the example that you gave, but one, the worst one that I saw was someone who was misdiagnosed with cancer, not on purpose, but honestly misdiagnosed, and he declined and died thinking he was terminal, and only in the autopsy did they discover he actually didn't have cancer. But he believed he did, and that was enough to alter his health. We have the placebo effect, where they're giving people a sugar pill or a nothing pill, but they think it's medicine and they actually physically improve. What we believe is extremely powerful. Okay, good. More. God is true. God is love. So I have in here the law of love, the law of giving. Yeah, and God, he treats his creature with the love and truth. And we're supposed to act in the same way we are. with the, the other people around us, wherever we going. Absolutely. Uh, with the law, of, the law of law. But if we're going to operate in our house, or in the church, with the law, law of uh, demanding, the law of uh, dictator, yep. the law of Satan. Absolutely. So that's a little mixture of the law of love and the law of liberty. All right, so let's talk about the law of love first. Also called the law of giving. The more you give, the more you receive I tell you we have practiced that in this ministry and it is awe inspiring we have given away lots of materials for free and the giving I mean the circle just keeps on going and literally the more we give away the more we receive this is how life was built to operate and are there examples of this that we see in nature supporting life? Think about the water cycle. We're not going to go through all these because I know we have gone through these. But the water goes through a cycle where the clouds give and the earth gives and the rivers give and the lakes give and the streams give and then the oceans give. And if a body of water chooses to separate itself from that giving circle and wants to keep all of its water for itself and it, it doesn't flow and it doesn't move, what happens? It stagnates, everything in it dies, and we have an example of that. Our breathing, every breath we breathe, we take in oxygen, we give out carbon dioxide, the plants give out oxygen to us, take in carbon dioxide. This is a quote from one of the founders of our church. It says, one of the divine plans for growth is impartation, another word for giving. The Christian is to gain strength by strengthening others. She quotes Proverbs 11.25, He that watereth shall be watered also himself. This is not merely a promise, it is a divine law. What kind of law? 
a law by which God designs that the streams of benevolence, like the waters of the great deep, shall be kept in constant circulation, continually flowing back to their source. In the fulfilling of this law is the secret of spiritual growth. In the sanctuary service, when they cut the circulation yes. of the lamb, was supposed to teach them that. Correct. And we see that everywhere. We see it in our, in our bodies, our circulatory system. We see it in economies. If, if the money has to be in circulation for an economy to be healthy. We see it in electrical current. If you break the current, the lights go off. Anyway, so that's everywhere. He also talked about the law of liberty, which is a good one. That's, I think that's the, the most misunderstood I agree. natural law in Christianity. I agree. It has to be because love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. Again, this law emanates from the very nature and character of God, and God is love. What happens when liberty is violated? There are a couple of very predictable, testable outcomes you can count on happening when someone's liberty is infringed. Do you know what they are? Do you remember them? Trust. Number one. Rebellion. That's that's secondary. That's what happens well, first? What happens to love if I violate your freedom? It's damaged. Love's damaged. Love dies. And eventually destroyed. If that if that keeps up. Two, we talked about the desire to rebel is instilled. And three, if freedom is not restored, then individuality is eroded and eventually destroyed. Does a person have to know about the law of liberty in order to experience these outcomes? They could be blind to it. Just like you don't have to know about the law of gravity for these to end up on the floor. Does a person's liberties actually have to be violated? Or is even the possibility or the threat of liberty being infringed enough to cause some of the outcomes? If you know that your liberties can be violated, do you still bristle, even if they haven't been? It makes being a parent somewhat difficult, because in certain respects you have to restrict a child's yes. liberty because they are uh, dangerous. And immature. Selves are mm-hmm. immature, you know. And as they get older, it's hard to know where that line yes. is between the restrictions that will create rebellion Absolutely. and the freedom that will create disaster lies. <laughs> Yeah. You know, where, where does that lie? And it, it makes being a parent a really tricky thing as they get older and it's older. It's a huge challenge. You know, to try to figure out how the Because you don't want to take away a person's will by just trumping all over yes. and saying, I don't, it's me, I'm the parent, you're the I'm child. I'm in control, yeah. You know, that, re, that just actually creates a bunch of rebelliousness <laughs> in the child. Yeah. But um, it, it, that's a very difficult line to make anywhere the difference between absolutely you know restriction and just utter freedom yeah i don't know if i'm making myself clear no you are i I mean i literally can't imagine because i'm not a parent but yeah we're a child i'm a child yeah where i was i might still be um, (laughs) in some ways but yeah very blurry lines and i think i don't know 
I don't think God ever infringes our freedom, but I think it's a line that he walks with us as well. Because when he tells us, I have much more to tell you, but you can't bear it. He's also waiting for our levels of maturity to reach these milestones so that we can grow and stretch and go to the next level. Is it don't be like a, a mule or donkey or whatever, which has to have a bit right in their, house, in their mouth or yeah. it won't follow you. You know, just trust what I'm telling you is the right thing to do. I set before you life and death. Mm-hmm. Choose life. Yes. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Anybody won't force us. They just say, Here's here are your choices. Right. And are are we seeing this followed in our churches today, or are we seeing something else? Well, we're seeing the law being followed, yeah, but only because those of us who can see it happening are just sort of naturally our love is dying. Right. We see the law of worship. In a diagnostic way. In a diagnostic way. And so we see a group wanting to control and, and force and intimidate. Right. Um, those under them. And we're seeing the natural result for those who are on the on the ground roots of these things. Yeah. So I've seen it happen in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, where I used to to think that the church was amazing, and now I've just had to redefine what I consider the church. Exactly. Which is actually quite healthy. So once you are convinced that this law, this law of liberty is real, that it works, that it is a constant that never changes, then you have a standard against which to test theories and test doctrines, test teachings, test beliefs about God. We're going to connect these dots, I hope, uh, on why and how this concept is important when considering the type of God that we choose to worship. What else? Okay, there's a couple more that I'm going to go through real quick. The law of respiration. This requires that you breathe in order to live. This is a natural design law. Why is breathing a requirement? That seems so unreasonable. Does the law of respiration condemn someone who ties a plastic bag over their heads and decides to hoard all their, their CO2? Yes, the law condemns them. But what are the wages of tying a plastic bag over your head? Death. Can the law of respiration be changed to meet the person with the bag over their head in that state so that they can remain healthy and alive? No. Can God's law be changed to meet the sinner in his sin? What if a person was suffocating with a plastic bag over their head and they had a loving brother who tied a bag over his head in order to pay the legal penalty of the broken law of respiration in hopes of saving the first person? Would that work? No. What would that action result in? What is the only option for salvation? We as sinners must be transformed back into harmony with God's law. And the plastic bag must be removed. What about the law of exertion? Does that ring a bell? If you want something to get stronger, you must exert it or exercise it. Because if you don't use it, you lose it. What does God really want for us? He wants us to grow in ability and develop a Christ-like character by trusting in him, which requires what? That we exercise our trust in him. 
We have to exercise our will by choosing to accept his truth updates. And again, this is club language. In the last couple of lessons, Tim has talked about the same way our computers or our phones get updates sent to them, and you have to accept, accept, accept. Yes, I want to upgrade. Yes, I want to update. When truth is presented to us by the Holy Spirit or by any source, we have to say, yes, I accept that. I agree with it. I want to apply that. This is practice. This is exertion and exercise. It's the reason there was the tree was in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> Another quote from Mrs. White. All who put to use the ability that God has given them will have increased ability to devote to his service. Those who do nothing in the cause of God will fail to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. If a man should lie down and refuse to exercise his limbs, he would soon lose all power to use them. Thus, the Christian who will not use his God-given powers not only fails to grow up into Christ, but loses the strength which he already had. He becomes a spiritual paralytic. It is those who, with love for God and for their fellow men, are striving to help others who become established, strengthened, settled into the truth. The true Christian works for God, not from impulse, but from principle, not for a day or a month, but during the entire life. Another quote, the mind must be exercised on the solemn truths of God's word or it will grow weak. Another quote, this is from Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. This is all the law of exertion. Yes, Teresa. You made a statement, this is why they, the tree was in the garden. Can you explain that? Yes. So they had... First of all, it limited where the devil had access to them, which was a merciful rescue. But it also gave them the opportunity to face decision, to exercise their will, to ask themselves, do I trust God? Do I think he has my best interest at heart? Is he trustworthy? And say, no, I'm not. He told he asked me not to eat of the truth. I believe he has my best interest at heart. He's looking out for me. He loves me. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to go walk with him and talk with him. That was the, those repeated decisions would have settled them into the truth had they chosen to say yes each time. Donna. It was to grow their character. Exactly. Because God cannot create character. He can I'm create. I have that answer because I've had people say, then why did he put the train? Right. I did tempt him anyway. Exactly. That, that makes sense. He can create perfect without choice. Yes, he can create perfect sinless beings, but he can't create character. Not even in his own son. Christ, when he was made perfect, became the source of salvation. He had to, through the exercise of his human mind, repeatedly choose not to save self, to give self, to give in love. That's how he perfected his Made character. Made perfect through suffering. We always eliminate that. From yes. That. That's, that's part of Hebrews. And see, Made perfect through suffering. What, what, and I don't think that the author of Hebrews is talking about the literal physical suffering Agreed. of being beaten, scourged, nailed to yeah. a tree. He's talking about the suffering of wrestling mm-hmm. Dying every hour, every minute of every day with the human nature given to him by his mother and the divine nature given to him by the Holy Spirit, and that wrestling and that constant choosing and suffering yes. of, of choice and exercising and strengthening of will to choose, not my will, Father, but yours. 
Yes. That's the suffering that once he'd been made imperfect. Agreed. Ken. I, I didn't start out to say say this first, but I, you, you've really you really covered this lesson well as far as I'm concerned. This mm-hmm. uh, just. I hadn't actually. We're, we're in Saturday, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I know. In fact, I'm ready to comment on something. Community is extremely important. That's what this, this whole lesson is sort of centered on, in spite of the fact that we've taken, you know, some liberties with, uh, you know, defining how we can better make community. Right. And I feel like this class is probably a university level class for our church. We need what this class has to offer in the Seventh Adventist Church. Amen. And I really, really am thankful that God has pulled somebody up like Tim Jennings, who is not going to stop until this message is clear to every person who will open their ears. Those who will, who will hear, let them hear. Amen. Yeah. There's a couple more. The law of sowing and reaping. The law of restoration. We're not going to talk about those because... Ugh. Anyway. Again, when Isaac Newton discovered and documented the law of gravity in 1687, did that mark the creation or the origination of that law? No. Or only the recognition and the naming of an already existing constant. That's what's true of these laws. And folks were surprised that there was a law of gravity. They thought stuff stayed on the ground or fell to the ground just because that's how it worked. But weren't we told that the angels in heaven were surprised to think that there was a law? Yes. At all? They, they lived in a, a way that life was built and harmonious. Exactly. And, and positive and where, where it could be ongoing and, and people didn't. Yes. Things were in harmony, not disharmony, mm-hmm. destructive. It even dawned on them there were yeah. laws. Who knew? <laughs> and the only kind of law that can be lived out without knowing about it is natural law and design law, imposed laws. You have to know about them. They don't post the speed limit. You don't know how fast to go. You don't know when you're going to get caught. All right. We're going to move to Monday's lesson called False Worship. We're going to go like Tim Speed. Second paragraph states, Satan seeks to establish a false system of worship, one that takes people away from the true God, and even if subtly, directs worship toward himself. How does he establish a false system of worship? And how does he subtly direct worship toward himself? The first paragraph mentions Jesus' third temptation in the wilderness as an example. What is tempting about devil worship? Are most Christians or even atheists tempted to openly worship Satan? What does Satan truly desire? Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4 says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. First of all, that doesn't sound subtle. And since we don't believe that he flies up to heaven and physically bumps Christ off his throne, how does Satan accomplish this? How does he set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God? We are God's temples. And why have so many people bought it? Reading that same Thessalonians text in the Remedy is going to give us some clues. 
Don't be fooled by any idea like this, because before the Lord returns, Satan will counter everything Christ taught, and a rebellion against God's law of love will occur. A man-made theological system of imposed law will form, and this system, which promotes God concepts outside God's law of love, will be exposed. This man-made system is destined for destruction because it opposes God's design for life and instead exalts a human concept of law and punishment over the way God built things to operate. This distorted view of God will become so accepted and orthodox that it will set itself up in God's spirit temple, the minds of people, and it will be proclaimed that God is like Satan in character. So he gets people, not just people, he gets Christians, Christ followers, Christ's ambassadors, to accept and proclaim and teach that God is like Satan in his character and his methods. Then he gets them to agree and endorse and value those coercive methods being marked in the forehead and practice or carry out those coercive punitive methods marked in the hand as described in Revelation 14:9 through 11. And a third messenger followed the first two and proclaimed in a voice that was heard throughout the world, if anyone gives worth and honor to the beastly system of coercion by choosing the methods of the beast and thus marking themselves as loyal in heart by embracing the character of the beast or marking themselves as loyal indeed by practicing his methods, they will reap the full fury of unremedied sin when God no longer shields them from their destructive choice. This is the true essence of false worship. Worshiping a God whose character, methods, and principles are those of Satan. You think that's too harsh? Not even close. By the way, one of the most successful uh, religious uh, features in the world is the Eastern religions that have to do with yin and yang, Mm -hmm. where basically uh, they're denying that there is a God of love. They're also denying that there is a God or the, an adversary of hate, like like Satan. They're saying that God has both of these things. Exactly, both aspects. And what that does, of course, is, is totally destroy the concept of the character of, of, of God that we, that we can recognize as, as uh, being worthy of salvation. The universe needs balance. And even in movies, you know, yes. they don't care about which side wins as long as there's balance. And like Eve said, it's not just... Christian, or it's not just Eastern religion. It's in ours too. God is love and justice. Yeah. That stems from a a misunderstanding of the law of liberty. Mm-hmm. There, there are so many Christians that cannot conceptualize a God that would allow an adversary. Why would you even allow an adversary to oppose you? Why not yeah. you eradicate them? Why don't you use force to eradicate that adversary? Why would you allow someone to give a opposing opinion? Why would you allow someone to institute a rebellion? What, what kind of God does that? What, mm-hmm. what sort of a weak, yes. timeless God does that? It's the misunderstanding of the law of liberty that, that leads to doctrines like, mm-hmm. well, okay, every, there's a little bit of evil in God, and there's a little bit of good in, mm-hmm. in the uh, opposition, and, and it works in a, in a harmonious balance. Yeah, it's horse manure. It has, it, it has to do with the, the whole concept of spiritualism where there's really nothing sacred and right. there's nothing profane. 
kind of bad as, as a unity test in our own hearts. Okay, we just came from hearing Ty Gibson. I only love God as much as I love the person that I love the least. So how much do I love the person that I like the least? Right. That's how much I love God. Interesting. All right, so we're over a little bit, but let's bring this around full circle. We were just talking about the natural design law of liberty. Remember that? Those of us with short-term <laughs> memory issues. So we said violations of it had some very predictable results. These results are provable. They're reproducible. Therefore, the law is testable, right? So what does that mean, and what does it look like in practical application? How can we use this knowledge practically to gain some insight and wisdom? Again, once you're convinced that the law is real, that it works, that it's a constant, it never changes, we have a standard that we can test our theories, doctrines, and beliefs against. God will never violate his own character of love, which means God will never violate freedom or the law of liberty. This standard, this law of liberty, is one of the spiritual weapons you can wield in warfare against evil forces. And remember, we are in a war. What are we in a war over? The knowledge of God. Who is God? What is he like? Can he be trusted? Is God like Satan has alleged, or is God like Jesus revealed him to be? This is the question. Well, now we have a standard against which we can test our theories. Is God a power monger? Is God a being of stern justice who must use his power to inflict punishment? Does God say, all I want is your love, but if you don't love me, I will kill you. I'll burn you in hell and torture you until you die. In every false religion of the world, the central fallacy is a distorted picture of God. He is either a being who is too busy to care, detached and disinterested, or he's a cruel being of absolute power that must be appeased. And what is the final contest over? What will be the culmination of events as the Bible predicts? It's a conflict of worship over two systems, two pictures of God. One, the beast system, which violates liberty. You can neither buy nor sell. Two, God's system of love. Greater love has no man than he give his life. This is how we know that what love is. For God so loved the world that he gave. These are they who do not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And what is the result of worshiping a God who does not value our freedom? What is the price we pay for accepting lies about God? What is the consequence to believing in a God who uses his power to destroy, and a God who must be appeased in order to forgive? It is a violation of the law of liberty, and these outcomes are just as predictable as what happens in human relationships. Our love is damaged and eventually destroyed. Rebellion is instilled, and individuality is eroded. Jesus states that at the end of time, the love of most will grow cold. Paul states they will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Why will love grow cold? Why will they have a form of godliness, but without any power? Because they have accepted Satan's version of God, and they preach it from the pulpit. When we have a form of godliness, but worship a God who is like Satan alleges, love is destroyed, and over time, we become shadow people. Or we either become shadow people, which is people who have lost their ability to reason, People who worship out of fear of punishment from God or maybe a compliance committee. 
People who become non-thinking, empty shells, afraid to have an independent thought. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. We don't ask questions. We take that on faith. People who rigidly cling to rules, rituals, and ceremony without understanding what they mean. If you haven't read Dr. Jennings' blog this week, please go to the website and find it. We become like the God we worship, and we will use power to control others, dominate others, coerce others into our way, even if it's to cleanse or purify his church. We will bomb abortion clinics. We'll fly planes into buildings. We use our power to silence freedom of thought and opposing views. Or we rebel completely. We reject the idea of God altogether and become a postmodernist, agnostic, evolutionary, teaching atheist. This is Satan's goal to destroy love and trust for God, and thus destroy humanity. Love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. God cannot be saying, love me or I'll kill you. If you hear such concepts, test them, do experiments. If you see doctrines or practices or methods employed that violate the law of liberty, test them, perform some diagnostics and root cause analysis. We are to practice God's law in our lives. We are to live a life in complete harmony with God and his natural laws. So if someone is teaching such distortions and you are confused, challenge and test those teachings and see what happens. Yes? Just one thing. This is what I think God is. He's a God who would use all power in six days to create the earth and then create a day for us to think about. Exactly. Not say, worship me, look at my power, worship me. Created a day for us to think about. This is a God who, in John, it says, and Jesus, knowing that all power in heaven and earth had been given to him, took off his outer garment, knelt Mm -hmm. down, and washed his disciples' feet. And it wasn't just Judas that day. It was every single disciple that very same day was going to desert him or deny him or betray him. Every single one, and yet with all power... That's what he did with it. He came to serve. And it's the reason the folks in heaven are casting their crowns before him and saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy to have all power because he's proven he can be trusted with the power. Let's bow our heads. Father, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Teach us to worship. Teach us who you are so we can worship the character of the true God, and that we can be transformed and have that character in ourselves and that we can, we can be that light and show it to others and, and lift you up so that others will be drawn to you. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.